The reading this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 40, starting to read at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or who, with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? For an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman he set, to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circles of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens, who created all these, he who brings out the starry host one by one, and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, <clears throat> the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not faint. What an amazing God we have. Amen. Indeed, what an amazing God we have, and what an amazing scripture that is. And I know that it's many people's uh, favorite scripture 
in the Old Testament. Good morning, everyone. Yes, I just realized it's the first time I've been to the frontier this morning, so it's uh, good to see you. Um, 2007, uh, author and journalist Christopher Hitchens published uh, his book entitled God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Um, Hitchens died in 2011, and as many of you know, Hitchens was a militant atheist, harshly critical of all kinds of organized uh, religion. And in his book, he says that uh, organized religion is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance, hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive towards children. And that organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. I don't think he was a great fan by the sound of it, really. Now, this morning, I'm not going to attempt to um, argue against Christopher Hitchens' book. Firstly, that would probably take six months. Secondly, it probably would not be the most edifying use of our time this morning. And thirdly, a lot of people, much cleverer than me, have already done so and have challenged his writings. But I was certainly intrigued by his book's title, God is Not Great. And that's what many people believe today, that God is not great. They say that if there is a God up there somewhere or out there somewhere, then he's not great. And he's not the kind of being that deserves our worship. Well, my focus this morning is not to convince militant atheists that God is great. But my focus this morning is to convince those who are already Christians that God is great. You see, we can live our lives as Christians sometimes without recognizing the greatness of the God that we serve. And uh, a deficient view of God produces a deficient faith, I believe. And for those who fail to recognize the greatness of God, they live their lives so often in insecurity and uncertainty and anxiety and timidity and mediocrity and indifference. But conversely, in the words of Daniel, the people that do know their God shall be strong and shall do exploits. It was Martin Luther who once told Erasmus, who was the humanist leader of the Renaissance, your thoughts of God are too human. What a great quote. That's one that uh, I've looked at many times over many years. Martin Luther to Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. And I believe that we need to restore God back into his rightful place, that God is greater than any comprehension that we have of him, that he is higher than our highest thoughts, that he is more wonderful than anything. His ways are higher, his thoughts are higher. And what we can understand about him is only because he in the first place has enabled us to glimpse something of his being. Otherwise we have no chance. I certainly welcome the fact that there's been a renewed emphasis on the nearness of God, that God is one who is closer than a brother. And we've been singing for many weeks, and we love singing that song, that he is a good, good father. 
speaks with the nearness of God. And the emphasis is on the fact that God knows us intimately, even the hairs on our head are numbered by him. Because many people over the years have viewed God as aloof, as detached, as up there somewhere, as totally disinterested in our lives. And this emphasis on the nearness of God is great. But I think that we need to take care that the pendulum does not swing too far. Where Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, the awesome God who sits in splendor among the angels who cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That he does not become our heavenly pal, the, the man upstairs. And I'm not just speaking of the kind of language that we use in addressing God, but more importantly, how we deep down in our hearts perceive our God. And maybe a great question at the start of our reflection this morning is how big is our God? Is he one for whom nothing is impossible? Or is he a God that we have reduced in line with the smallness of our own thinking? I say this is so important because those who have a great God have great faith, do exploits. And the way that we believe in God will always affect the way that we behave as Christians. Now, there are many great chapters in the Bible, as we know, and there are many great chapters on the subject of the greatness of God, and many of them are found in the Psalms. But we're going to focus a few thoughts this morning, a few reflections on the reading that Jill brought to us a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 40. And as I often say to you on a Sunday morning, whenever we come to the Scriptures, we need to understand the context. It's context, context, context. And the people that Isaiah was prophesying to were despondent. And their faith was being tried in a way that we cannot even imagine. For on the horizon, there was this wicked, powerful, evil enemy called the Assyrian army. A modern day um, example of this would be a, a Christian living in Baghdad and seeing in the distance the Islamic State terrorists coming closer and closer and closer to, to them. And hearing all about the Islamic State terrorists, their acts of beheading children and raping women and mutilating men until they bleed to death and and the fear that that must have caused. And you see, the brutality of the Assyrians was equal in the brutality to the Islamic State. And in Isaiah, I don't know if any of you have taken the time to read through all 66 chapters, but there's bad news and there's good news. First of all, the bad news was that the nation of Israel would be defeated by this Assyrian army. They would be wiped out. They would be no more. But there was good news. And the good news was that the nation of Judah, that they would survive the Assyrians. But there was more bad news. And that even though they might survive the Assyrians, there was coming another world superpower after the Assyrians called the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were going to defeat Judah. But there was also some more good news. And the good news was that God was still in control. And God would deliver them and restore them as a nation. <clears throat> and, you know, I see Isaiah, the 66 chapters, almost like the 66 Bible, uh, books that we have in our Bible. The first 39 
are equivalent to our Old Testament, and the next 27 uh, are very much equivalent to our New Testament. Because in the first 39 chapters, if you read that, all uh, we read there is the, the judgment of God on Judah and the surrounding nations. But then there's a change uh, in chapter 40. And for the last 27 chapters, the prophet Isaiah speaks about forgiveness and hope and comfort and the coming of the Messiah. You see, Isaiah informs the people of Judah that they had a future. There was reason for hope and comfort. Not everything was lost. And the reason that Isaiah gives to the people of Judah that there was hope was that they served a great God. And that's what that chapter is all about. It is about the greatness of God. And these people were anxious. They were deflated. They were discouraged. And that's what Isaiah does to encourage them. He just reminds them of the greatness of the God that they serve. They were desperate, despairing people. They needed to hear that message that God was alive and still on the throne. And that might well be a message this morning that some of us also need to hear. It may be that we have become desperate and despondent and discouraged in our Christian faith. It may be that we have lost all hope of God working in our lives. It may be that spiritually we're at a low ebb. And there are times that we feel that God is not there at all, or if God is there, then he's not listening to us, or he's not powerful enough to do anything. Little Susie, she finished a prayer and said, Dear God, before I finish, I want, you to, I want to pray, please take care of mummy, and please take care of daddy, and please take care of my sister, and please take care of my brother. And please, God, please take care of yourself, because if you don't, we're all sunk. And I think Susie, in her own way, got it right. Without God, we're all sunk. And you see, Isaiah's message here is that God is great. But what does that mean? You know, you know, we, we go out for a meal and we say, oh, it was a great meal. And we use that word in all sorts of ways today. I've got three words that I want to share with you this morning. I suggest that these words are helpful in understanding what it means that God is great. And the first thing I would say, that God is incomprehensible. In other words, God is beyond our understanding, which might sound a little bit surprising to some of you because you know that the overall message of the Bible is that we serve a God who desires to be known. He has made himself known to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ essentially. In Hebrews chapter 1, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and at many, in many times in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. What great words, aren't they? That God came to us in flesh and blood, in the person of Jesus. In other words, God decided not to stand aloof and detached from us. But since he desires to be known uh, to us, why therefore am I suggesting that God is incomprehensible or beyond our understanding? And the answer to that is, because 
even though God has a desire to be known and found by us, we will not know everything that there is to know about God. You know, it's impossible for us to know what God knows. In Psalm 145, it starts with these words. I'm, I'm sure you know this psalm. I will exalt you, my God and King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. In other words, his greatness is incomprehensible. That we are limited in our knowledge, but God is not. God knows all things. He knows the end as well as the beginning. He knows everything that has happened in my life and in your lives. He knows your future. He knows your sins. He knows your sorrows. He knows those times when maybe you will shed tears in that quiet place where no eyes are upon you, but God sees them. Psalm 139 is a great psalm. And it deals with the omniscience of God. That might not be a word which you're familiar with. with it. it means all-knowingness, that God knows everything. Again, some wonderful words. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. You see, he knows everything. His knowledge is so vast, so great, that the psalmist here says that we cannot understand it. We cannot attain it. We do not know what God knows, and therefore we need to confess that much of the time we do not know why God is doing what he is doing in our lives. Yeah? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Paul's words in Romans 11, his ways are past finding out. God's wisdom is infinitely greater than ours. His Ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. There are times when we feel that we have worked it all out. I don't know if you're ever like me, and we do that. You know, oh, I know what you're doing, God, and you're going to do this, then you're going to do that, and I, I get the plan. And then God sort of does the very opposite of what we're expecting. And we say, why, God? What's going on here? Why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. I thought you were going to do this as the next thing. But because, you see... God can see what we can't see. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees all the complexities and the barriers. And he sees everything which is hidden from our view. My grandfather, <coughs> when I was only about Elijah's age, he taught me to play drafts. And I always lost. And he was a brilliant drafts player. And I knew that I was in trouble when I was playing my grandfather in drafts. Because he would, on occasions, willingly sacrifice one of his pieces. And I thought, oh no. <laughs> he knows something that I don't. And yes, you're right. It was only about two or three moves further on, he would take four or five of my pieces and wipe the board and finish the game. 
He's such a great drafts player. And you see, there are times when we might wonder what God is doing. And we cannot understand what God is doing and why God is allowing something to happen in our lives. Something that appears to be negative at face value, detrimental to us. But then God turns it around for good. And he has this wonderful knack of turning that which is negative into positive. And he does it, you know, with just one stroke of a pen, just one word. So God is great, firstly, because he is incomprehensible. But he is also great because he is incorruptible. Everything else in life is corruptible. We live in a decaying world. We ourselves are decaying. (coughs) Jesus said that we should not store up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. But we should be rich towards God that we should store up our treasures in heaven. Nothing lasts forever. The food in your fridge, the toys you bought for the kids at Christmas time, that new car, that beautifully decorated and furnished new home. Even we ourselves, because one day a Christian minister will stand over our remains and say those well-known words. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You see, everything in this world is decaying, except God himself is incorruptible. God has no beginning and no end. He doesn't change. He doesn't get old. doesn't get decrepit. Just looking at you there, Tim. <laughs> doesn't lose the plot. No, I'm, I'm, I'm giving up on this. I'm not going to pick on anyone else. doesn't lose the plot. doesn't get absent-minded, me. doesn't have senior moments. And that means that God, the one in whom we trust and have entrusted our lives, is not going to let us down. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to mess up. He's not going to forget. That's me. Got to write everything down. On my iPad, everything. That's why I bring her on Sunday morning as much as anything else. Because you tell me things, and five minutes later, it's gone. But that's not God. He will not fail. Verse 28 of our reading this morning Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. There's that great Psalm 121. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And you see, the people that were prophesied to by Isaiah were under great strain. There were these great national powers, these world superpowers all around them. There were the Assyrians and the Babylonians and there was Egypt. And little Judah dwarfed in comparison to these mighty superpowers. But God says in verse 15, Surely these nations are like a drop in the bucket and are regarded as dust on the scales. You see, God was saying to them, they might instill fear into the hearts of people. But to me, they're nothing. They're nothing. Small fry. God can institute regime change any time he so chooses to do so. And if 
those mighty nations were just nothing to God. We can say much the same to those great big problems in our lives. Those things that keep us awake at night. Those things that we struggle over. And we can say, God, you are a great God. In his book, Life Sentence, uh, Charles or Chuck Colson, formerly the hatchet man of the Nixon uh, administration. Do you remember the Watergate scandal? Well, those of you probably of my age will. You guys, Watergate what? <laughs> but um, this guy, uh, Chuck Colson, was one of uh, President Nixon's uh, right-hand men. And um, he was sent to prison for his part in the Watergate scandal, and he became a Christian. And then years later, when he was strolling along the ruins of the Roman Senate uh, there in Rome, uh, and he was recalling his feelings, and he wrote these words. As I stood snapping photographs, my mind flashed back to the Roosevelt Room in the White House, a few steps across the narrow hallway from the President's Oval Office. At 8 o'clock each morning, a dozen of us, the President's senior aides, had gathered around the antique mahogany table. Its polished surface reflected the serious, intense expressions of men who believed that they had the destiny of mankind in their hands. The decisions we make today, Henry Kissinger would often say, will affect the whole future course of, the human, of human history. And we believed it. Just as those nearly 2,000 years ago, yet here their once majestic forum in dusty piles of stone and rubble, would even this much be left of the Roosevelt Room, I wondered, in two centuries, let alone two millennia from now. Wow, I find that incredibly challenging. Everything is corruptible. Except God. Verse 23. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither and the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. And there have been many, many great world rulers. Um, in Bible times, men like Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib and Alexander the Great and the, and the Caesars. You then have, in, throughout history, men like Napoleon and Stalin and Hitler and Mao Zedong. And they ruled by fear. And in their days, they seemed invincible. But the Lord reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Great and powerful nations have come and gone. They were corruptible. But Almighty God is still on the throne. That's the message, okay? He is still on the throne. So God is great because He is incomprehensible. He is great because He's incorruptible. And He's great because He's incomparable. In other words, there is no one higher and no one greater than Him. He is above all the principalities and the powers. He's incomparable in terms of his position, that he is Lord of all. And he's incomparable in terms of his power. Verse 12 says, of his greatness. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? 
or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. And when we look at the world around us, when we see the, the, the height of some of the mountains of this world, and the depths of the greatest oceans, and the expanse of the heavens, and the beauty, the natural, awesome power of volcanoes and tornadoes and floods and earthquakes. I don't know about you, but I say, well, if God has created all of this, how much greater must he be? Many years ago, we were excited by the discovery of DNA, which is the, the basic gene component in living cells deoxyribonucleic acid. I remember that from my ear level. Can't remember anything else, but I remember that. But recently there's been a further astounding advance, the Human Genome Project. And this has shown the details of each strand of DNA in our cells, that there are three billion pairs which make up the full human genome sequence. Someone said that the coding in our cells is far more complicated than the entire national telephone system. And brilliant science, scientists have worked this out. It's amazing stuff. It really is. Dr. Elaine Starkey, however, wrote, mapping the genome is infinitely more straightforward than making it. In fact, more thought seems to have gone in the tip of a little finger than in all the equipment needed to study it. At best, we're thinking the designer's thoughts afterwards. And we are a long way behind. The universe is God's universe. And in despite, in despite all the technological and scientific advancements, we are still like grasshoppers in comparison. He is greater than the heavens. Verse 25. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Lord, the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. When scientists start speaking about the heavens, I am always utterly gobsmacked at what they're trying to say. I simply cannot get my mind around this stuff. Especially when they start talking about light years. Now, light year is not a time. You know, a year is a time. Light year is not a time. It is a distance. It is the distance that light travels in one year. And the speed of light is 186 thousand miles a second. That's fast. So the distance that light will travel in one year is 186,000 times 60 times 60 times 24 times 365, which is 5,880... No, so 5,000... 5,880 billion, or if you want it in another way, 5.88 trillion miles. So if you're going to go away for a light year, you need to take a few sandwiches, don't you? You really do. 
This is incredible. And, you know, scientists just speak of so-so as so many light years away. Because that's the number that we're talking about. It's 5.88 trillion miles is one light year. So when a, an astronomer says that the nearest star may be 40 light years away, that means it is 40 times that incredible distance. So it is possible that we are still on an evening receiving light from a star which might have blown up 39 years ago. Whoa. I told you, this is incredible stuff. And we are instructed there. Verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each by name. No wonder the Lord says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Wow. Can anybody tell me how far the sun is from the earth? Or the earth from the sun? Any of you know that? Eight minutes. No, I wasn't thinking of time. I was thinking of distance. But yeah, well done. Whoever said that? Sorry? Okay. It's 93 million miles from sun to earth. Now, I brought these in a little bit earlier. And when I brought uh, in some of this paper, these are reams of paper, Dan asked me, uh, I hope that's not your sermon today. <laughs> Just imagine, okay, the distance, the 93 million miles from earth to the sun is represented by this thickness of paper. Okay? Now, the nearest, the next nearest star to the sun, if that was 93 million miles, it would be the equivalent of paper stacked 22 meters high. Whoa! I'm six foot three, so it would be probably roughly another 10 people my size standing on top of me. So we're not going to count every single sheet of paper. So there's 500. Thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand, two thousand five hundred. Well, I think we better count in boxes, don't you? <laughs> oh, all right. Oh. Right. So there's there's ten thousand pieces of paper. But we're, not, we're remembering that this is 22 meters high just for the nearest star. Times that 93 million miles. It's just utterly astounding. And there are so many stars in our galaxy alone that if you start counting the stars just in our part, our little cul-de-sac of the universe the Milky Way, and you started counting at the speed of three per second, one, two, three, four, five, six, at that pace, and you were just to count the stars in our galaxy, our little cul-de-sac of the universe, you would carry on counting for 24 hours a day for a thousand years. 
And if you wanted to count all the stars in the universe, counting at three per second, it would take you a little bit longer. It would take you three trillion years. You see, what I'm trying to do this morning is paint this picture that Isaiah paints to this people who were really going through the mill. And he was just trying to expand their understanding of what Almighty God is like. And these are just concepts. We know that. But how great is our God and they needed to be reminded of the greatness of God because of these, they were fearful of foreign enemies. But they did what we often do. And they were looking not to God, but they were looking to their problem. Now, how often do we do that? And all we see is the problem which is before us, the problem which confronts us. It's like a huge mountain before us and it shadows everything else. I think the psalmist got it right when he wrote Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And there are times that we need to not look at the problem, but we need to cast our eyes higher. I lift up my eyes. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the maker of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And this chapter finishes with perhaps the most well-known, well-loved words in the Old Testament. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Isaiah in this great chapter has told us about the greatness of God. That our God is incomprehensible. Our God is incorruptible. And our God is incomparable. And he has encouraged them about the greatness and the strength of God. But he doesn't stop there. Look at the last few lines of those words on screen. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles and they will run and not grow weary and they will not walk and not faint. And what I'm going to say next is so, so, so important. It is possible to have all of your theology right, to be a person of good theology, to know all the right stuff, to know in your heads that God is great and there's nothing that I have said this morning which has changed anything in the way that you think about God. I haven't told you anything new. But we need to convert that head knowledge into trust and into hope. You see, it's one thing to know that God can do anything. But it's another thing altogether to trust the God who can do anything. Are you with me on that? It's one thing to know that God is mighty, but it's another thing to place our hope in Him. 
or to give him that problem, that financial difficulty, that problem child, that illness, to leave that in his care. And that really is where the tire hits the road this morning. You see, you can leave this place today and have your head full of knowledge, or you can leave this place actually with a new trust and a new hope and a new confidence and a new resilience and a new assurance in God. A little girl listening attentively to her father, awed by the, what God is like, what her dad was saying to her, and she asked him the question, how big is God? And her father thought for a moment and answered, he's always just a little bit bigger than you need. That was a very wise, wise answer. There's a song we'll be singing in a moment's time, there's a line in it which says, where there seems to be no way, you make it possible. Somehow, I don't believe that you were being here this morning was an accident or... I, I, I believe you were meant to be here. Meant to be here to hear some of the things that I've been sharing with you. And I want you to take this great teaching that Isaiah gives us on the, the character of God from Isaiah chapter 40. And I don't want you to go and say, well, I knew all of that. Uh, nothing new there this morning. But I want you to take that and consciously apply that to those issues, those problems, those great big mountains in your life which you are presently experiencing.